Well, as Pastor mentioned earlier, my name is Rich Brown. I know many of you, as many of you know, I, I hang out with the college group. They haven't kicked out Christy and I yet, and uh, I don't often get to meet the other adults, I'll say, of our congregation, but it's a pleasure to be with you here uh, tonight. Both, both my wife, Christy, and I are very, very blessed to call ourselves members of the Timberlake Baptist Church family. We've been here almost 11 years now. The Lord has blessed us with three children, all of whom love and serve the Lord. We have two boys located in Ohio and a daughter that resides in Kansas City, Missouri, so they're not here with us, but we certainly enjoy the visits out there and as they come to see us here. And Our two oldest, our oldest son and our daughter, both are married. They've given us six wonderful grandchildren. Our youngest son is, the making, is making the most of the single years. He works during the day and works student ministry at night at Wright State University in an international student outreach there in Dayton, Ohio. As far as my upbringing, I was very blessed to be raised in a family with parents that loved me and were committed to my upbringing. Lots of boys in our family growing up. There was dad and me and my three brothers. My mom was very outnumbered. Even the dog was a boy in our family. Um, I was raised Roman Catholic, and our family faithfully attended Mass every Sunday. We went to confession periodically on Saturday. I did my penance as instructed by the priest, and I reluctantly took my Catholic catechism classes at night. I would have called myself then a good moral person, from a, a human, unsafe perspective. And uh, after graduating from high school, I went out to um, engineering school at the University of Toledo, um, about an hour and a half from home. And the first fall there in college, I didn't know who my roommate would be. This, yeah, this was before the day of the internet. And we couldn't find those things out ahead of time, so who would my roommate be as we gathered there that fall? And much to my surprise, I had two roommates instead of one. We all were crammed into a two-person room there, and they were overbooked for the, that particular first semester there. So I had two roommates, and um, a little crowded, as you might imagine. But there, with these two roommates, the Lord laid before me the two paths that we know so well in Psalm 1, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. The first path, exemplified by the first roommate, was growing a large plant in the windowsill in a large, nice pot, and that was called marijuana. Uh, it was a flourishing plant. It was doing quite well. Um, I can't remember if he was a horticulture major or not, but if he wasn't, he should have changed his major because that plant was thriving. And the second path was my other roommate who came in with a Bible. He was the one that first shared the good news of Christ with me. And for a year, year and a half, I resisted the gospel. I mean, the Catholic Church is a works-based religion. I was kind of proud of what I accomplished or what I thought I was accomplishing. And I would ask the question to my roommate, how could the Pope be wrong? How could millions of Catholics possibly be wrong? And on one occasion, I, my roommate and I were having a discussion, as we often did on spiritual things, and we were talking about heaven and hell, and I stated my claim that purgatory was the place that I would likely land. 
in um, the Catholic Church, there's this place of purgatory, and if you're not good enough for heaven, then you're just a little bit better than deserving hell. You go to this, this middle place where you pay for your sins, and you, and you have indulgences paid, and people pray for you. And at every Catholic funeral I went to, we prayed for my uncle or my aunt or my grandfather who was in purgatory. So that's where I expected to go, and I just thought I could just be good enough and skate my way there. Until my roommate shared with me that purgatory was not in the Bible. And that caught my attention. And not only that, but I couldn't deny the positive change the gospel brought in the life of my roommate and others that other Christian friends that he had. So my second year of college, a Christmas break, riding back in the family van on a trip to Florida, I confessed my sins and trusted Christ in the back of the van. I repented from those things that I believed were my idols. I was a big long-distance runner. That was my life, track, cross-country. I lived and breathed on the road. Um, and uh, it consumed my life. And I, a campus pastor, a pastor of a local church who was leading an outreach there in Toledo, University of Toledo, shared a book with me, uh, Jerry Bridges, The Pursuit of Holiness. And, and there I found out God's holy requirements, that I needed to be holy as he is holy. And this uh, idol in my life was more important to me than God, even though it's a morally neutral kind of activity, long-distance running. But in that book, it goes through another person that was struggling with the same thing, and that was instructive to me. And that, amongst other things, are things I turned from and repented of, and I just wanted to follow Christ with all my heart. I was baptized, and I got involved with the college ministry that was an outreach there at the Emmanuel Baptist Church in Toledo, there at the University of Toledo. And uh, every, every opportunity I had, I shared the gospel with my parents. Um, it wasn't always the best presentation. It wasn't always done out of love. I was, but boy, I was giving them the gospel. Heaven, hell, there's no purgatory. I was letting them have whatever little I knew, but I wanted them to be saved. And uh, wow, with great resistance for a period of time, my mom and dad met with some really difficulties in their life. And finding no answers from the Catholic Church or from their priest, they looked to a changed life. They looked to the words of the gospel. And in, the, in their 60s, they trusted Christ. They were divorced at the time, and they'd been remarried. Um, real blessing. And in, in their remarriage, they, they focus on ministering to troubled marriages. This is a few Easter's ago. Christy and I were back home for Easter. My dad was in a Baptist church. Wow, That's, that, that, that just didn't happen in my family. Where my dad was raised, he happens to be in Leroy, New York today, visiting. Catholics were buried on one side of the family and Protestants on the other. You just, you, 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 there was a certain level of separation there. And that Easter a few years ago, my dad served communion to me in that Baptist church. He's the chairman of the board there, the deacons. And I just have to pinch myself when I see how good and gracious that God has been. Well, uh, graduated from college. Of course, I met Christy. We got married soon after college, went down to Columbus, we started an outreach ministry there through our local church, Maranatha Baptist, at the Ohio State University, little community college, you could say, there of 50,000 students. And we loved college ministry. This is where God changed me. And even though we didn't know, know much, we did work doing Bible studies, we discipled, we worked with international students. And we, we did that ministry in our college career ministry there at Maranatha Baptist for 25 years until that economic downturn around 2010, and I lost my job. 
and uh, that's where we landed here, uh, looking for engineering work. And right now, we're just very blessed to be serving alongside the Mackeys and a number of other great boundless uh, leaders and students uh, in our boundless college and singles ministry. I've had the privilege of serving here as a deacon, and as uh, Don Bowman, Bowman mentioned last week, we, we've both been consistently meeting with the elders here uh, in the church, and we are very thankful for the time they've expended working with us. So I'm honored and humbled and to be considered a non-vocational elder candidate at our wonderful church. Well, as I considered the circumstances surrounding my coming to know Christ, I was reminded in a profound way of the love of God and Jesus Christ for me, and specifically how God used others as they extended their love toward me. I was not an easy one to love. I was not looking for significant change in my life. I was quite content with my sinful freedoms, and I was satisfied with calling my own shots in life. I liked to do things the way I pleased. And despite my lack of interest in spiritual things, my roommate and Christian friends pursued me, with a, and as well as a local church, pursued me with just a, a, a sacrificial love, a, a proactive uh, intentionality. You know, the Bible tells us that love is to be a distinctive mark of the Christian. You'll remember uh, this passage here in John 13, after Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, and he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. In fact, if we want to imitate God and be Christ-like, then you must learn and practice a love for others. Therefore, be imitators of God, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Why does imitating God mean that I will be a lover of others? Well, the scriptures declared that God is love. It's a summing up of all that God is in his nature and his character. And therefore, to imitate him in his fundamental nature naturally means that we will progressively learn and practice a love that is like his. So tonight, I would like to focus on this topic of love. And if you would, Get your Bibles out and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 13. And tonight I'm going to be speaking on the topic of the debt of love. The debt of love. So go to Romans, chapter 13. And we'll be looking primarily, we're looking at a few places in Romans, but primarily verses 8 through 10. So I'm going to read verses 8 through 10 right now. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. What I want to look at specifically tonight as we look at this passage are four lessons that Paul teaches us about love and the law. And this first lesson we're going to look at is this, in verse 8. The magnitude of my love for others is to be limitless. Look there again at verse 8 in the first part. Owe no one anything. It's an intriguing phrase here. What does it mean? Well, I believe as you look back at verse 7, it's a continuation of thought that's stated there in verse 7, where it says, pay to all what is owed them. 
Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now you know the context here in Romans 13. Uh, it's a familiar passage on the role of government and our Christian responsibilities. If you look at verse 1 in chapter 13, it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And why? For there is no other authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So governing authorities are to be, respect, to be respected because they are established by God, the ultimate authority. Now, we have to accept this reality by faith, don't we? Realizing that we see as our governing authorities, we, they, they seemingly exist by man's actions alone, and we don't always agree with those actions. And yet the scriptures are clear. God sovereignly places all rulers in their positions of authority to accomplish his purposes. And some of those purposes there you see in verses 2 through 5 of Romans 13. To promote orderliness in a sinful wor world by rewarding good and to punish and restrain evil. And therefore it says in verse 5, one must be in subjection. And going down to verse 6 you see, for because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. We pay taxes because we're to properly subject ourselves to the government. Taxes are not optional. It's something we owe. You see that in verse 7. Pay to all what is owed them. So as interesting as you go to verse 8 here, owe no one anything, and then Paul puts a little twist here. It says, owe no one anything. Pay off. In other words, pay off your debts of verse 6. and verse 7, pay off your taxes when they are due. But we see Paul add in this interesting caveat. He says, owe no one anything except to love one another. And here we see Paul flipping the script on his uh, financial advice, you could say. He now defines a debt that we are always obligated to pay and with no due date like tax time. This is a debt of love toward others. The 2020 tax season is over. I think most of you know that. You should. Those payments have been paid. Most of you should have paid those things. But here's a debt never to be paid off. In this financial plan of love, as believers, we are always in the red and we're never to be in the black. In other words, as John MacArthur said, the only debt you must always owe is love. There's always a bill to pay in this obligation to love others. Let's do again and again and again. And that, that's counterintuitive to our, our thinking, isn't it? I mean, debts are to be paid and done away with. Uh, we don't love that feeling of the, the debt hanging over us, don't we? Like to get taken care of with the bills, the loans, or the car payment. When Christy and I were first married, we, we, we worked very hard on my debts. Christy worked full-time through college, and she went through debt-free. Uh, I enjoyed college, <laughs> and I, I came out with debts. Uh, and uh, so she signed up to that when we got married, and that's what we worked on when we, when we got married. And man, it was a happy day when it was complete. And yet here in Romans 13, 8, we're told to never celebrate a completion of love to others. You're not supposed to. Believers are to remain indebted to others, and we keep paying this debt by loving them. Now, the love described here is agapao love, or agape. You're familiar with that. It's this unconditional, sacrificial love. It's the kind of love that's best described and demonstrated by God himself. It demonstrates, it's demonstrated by God's love for sinners who so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
It's demonstrated by God the Father's love for his son, John 3.35 or John 15.9. And this love is more than feelings. I do believe feelings are oftentimes a part of love, and as you mature in the Christian life, I do believe our affections often motivate our love, but it's not to be dependent on feelings. Love, agapao love's authenticity, is shown by actions that it elicits for the sake of others. So this kind of love is self-sacrificing. It's the laying aside of one's own interests or time and resources for the good of another person. No prerequisite. It's unconditional. And I, I believe, like most individuals that come up here to teach, this lesson was very convicting to me. The principle of the debt of love has been something I've had to think about the many times I've become weary in doing good. I oftentimes feel I've met my love quota, so to speak, and I've got just no more to give. Or I tend to live by the saying, even though I wouldn't say it, I've done my good deed for the day, or the week, or the month. Again, meeting that, quote, that quota. And I, I struggle with practicing a love of, uh, uh, as a debt that I always owe. Debts require action. They require a response. Man, I'm recognizing there are times that I am not pursuing others with this kind of love. I often look, if we see it in the financial jargon that Paul is using, I, I see uh, a love as more of like an interest-free loan. Uh, I can pay when it's convenient or when I feel like it. And Paul calls it, calls it a debt, something we owe and owe and owe. So I've had to correct my attitude. What about you? What are the implications of this debt of love for others? They're quite far-reaching, aren't they? With this debt of love for others, you can never say that you have loved your spouse enough. Men, we are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We're indebted. We must love and love and love unconditionally as Christ loved the church. With this debt of love, you can never say you've loved your brother or sister in Christ enough. There's, there's always a debt to pay. There's always a need in people's lives. There's always a different way to serve others. With this debt of love, I can never say I've loved my roommate enough. We always encourage college students to have a roommate. It's okay to live by yourself, but oh, the sanctifying effect of living with someone else that eats your food or leaves those dirty dishes, right? And you learn to work out issues and get married for possibly, or get uh, prepared possibly for married life in the future. You can never love enough. We can never love the unsaved enough. A consistent, loving, prayerful pursuit for unbelievers, as my friends did for me in college. So you might be asking the question, why am I indebted to others? My debt of the love for others has no limit because as a believer, I have received limitless love from God. That's the reason we're indebted. A passage you've seen before in 1 John 4, 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here we see the limitless love of God on display, the love of God that was manifest in the sending of his son, that while we were yet sinners and we weren't looking for Christ and, and we were about, about rebellious and rebels in our hearts, God sent his son. And what's the response we see in verse 11? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This 
This word odd, in, as it's used in the ESV here, means obligated, or we are debtors. We're debtors to love. So my debt of love to others is grounded on the limitless love of God I've received in Christ. Christ's love was extravagantly lavished on me when I was least deserving. Now here in our fellowship, we, I, I get to see all the time, love on display. I get to see all of you routinely loving each other. And, you know, many times we love others as a response to others loving us here at Timberlake. And many times that's a very good and appropriate response, right? We practice proper courtesies and manners and protocols in showing love after it's received. But let's be clear here about this debt of love we're looking at. I am not indebted to love others only when someone else has first done something for me, right? Rather, this debt of love is required of us because of God's unfathomable love for us. The sense of obligation to love others is not predicated on the merits of the other persons. We pay it because of the mercy and grace and love that we've already received in Christ. And if you think about this, this perspective of love certainly helps when someone significantly hurts us and sins against us. And perhaps we've been deeply wounded. And it becomes very hard to love others with a debt of love. But We can love them knowing that God loved us. I am indebted to them. And while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I have a reason to continue to pay that debt of love. It's not because they're deserving. It's because of what Christ first did for me. May God help us with that kind of love. So as we look at four lessons Paul teaches us about love and the law, we'll look at a second one here, a second lesson and that's the manifestation of my love for others, is the fulfillment of God's righteous laws. And we'll look there again at verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Let me say this in another way. You could say it this way. There is one law, when properly followed, that fulfills all the other laws, and that's the law of love. You'll remember the passage in Matthew, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets are summarized in these two commands, loving God and loving others. This is quite remarkable, isn't it? Think of this. Love fulfills the entirety of God's righteous standards that he established for man. And so the central theme of God's law, the heart of the law of God, is to love others. And that love to others is what flows out of our love for God. And therefore, as we pursue God and love him with all our heart and mind and soul, we are to be loving others as one of the greatest pursuits of our lives. Loving others accomplishes what God requires of us. And therefore, the manifestation of my love to others is the fulfillment of God's righteous laws. Now, you look at this, it might seem a little confusing. Fulfilling the law. Isn't that something Christ did for us? Turn to Romans 8. And let's see what Christ did do for us. Just turn back a few pages there. 
What's being said here, fulfilling the law? Well, Paul gives clarification here. You might be asking the question, isn't this something only Jesus could do? Look there at verse 1. Very familiar passage. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This verse declares the wonderful reality of of our justification, doesn't it? Those in Christ Jesus will face no condemnation because they've been declared righteous on the merits of Jesus Christ alone. And this also means that the righteous requirements of the law have been fully met by Jesus Christ on our behalf. So when you jump into verse 2 there, you see, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We've been set free. The law held us captive. God's holy requirement is perfection. And in our sin, we could not fulfill it. And therefore, sinful man is condemned by the law. The law is righteous, but it condemned us. But now in Christ, you see here in verse 2, the Spirit of God has set us free. The penalty of the law is no longer held against us. We are in union with Christ, Romans 6. We're in union with Christ who fulfilled the law perfectly. And when God sees the believer, he sees one who fully meets the requirements of the law. Donald Barnhouse, who wrote a commentary on Romans, said this, It is impossible for God himself to find a flaw in the righteous position of any believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing can be found. I'm a manufacturing engineer, as I often tell, time tell the boundless students, I try to be an engineer. I've been doing it for 36 years now. And you get a few experiences or a little wear on your tires as you do that. There was a time as a manufacturing engineer, we actually manufactured things in the United States. Used to work in a big factory in Columbus, 5,000 people, the building's not even there anymore. And now these products are produced for our company, as we design the products, they're produced by other companies that we contract for us uh, to build. So what I will receive are these products manufactured in Mexico or manufactured in China, and I'll often travel there, pre-COVID at least, and uh, I'll inspect those products to make sure they've built them according to our standards, that they meet workmanship requirements and the things we've documented. So I will scrutinize these things uh, using my experience. Uh, I remember a seasoned engineer back when I was a young engineer once told me that his job is one that any 12-year-old could do with 30 years' experience. And that's me. Uh, I just feel like, oh, it's so routine. And yet, it's nothing anybody couldn't do without some experience. So I use my experience to criticize another man's work. And I look at it, and I find defects and problems, and put together reports and say, hey, you've got to improve this. You've got to improve that, because we need better quality and all those good things. Well, let me tell you something. There is no one, bar none, that has more experience with righteousness and holiness than our righteous and holy God. God in his nature is holy, holy, holy. And when he inspects the life of the believer, he finds no flaws, no sin, just perfection. And it's only because of the righteousness of Christ. And thus we are not condemned. What a beautiful reality. He goes on there in verse 3, for for what God has done, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. What is it saying here? The 
The Son of God took on human flesh. And this Jesus, who knew no sin, who perfectly followed and obeyed and fulfilled all the requirements of law, this same Jesus was condemned for our sins. The law we couldn't keep, he kept. The law that condemned us, condemned him. This condemnation of Christ here in verse 3 is what guarantees no condemnation to the believer in verse 1. Donald Barnhouse, again, I think, said it well. It, it would be impossible for God to strike Christ as it would be for him to strike us who are in Christ Jesus. Speaks of our assurance, our confidence in our relationship with Christ. But look at verse 4, right? As we've been seeing here, Jesus fulfilled the law for us. And now in verse 4, Paul speaks of the law be f- being fulfilled in us. See that? Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We have seen that Christ's work on the cross has secured a right standing of believers before God. And surely that is understood here. But in the context of Romans 8, there's more that's being said. Notice again in verse 4. It talks about who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This walk speaks of the believer's lifestyle, how they think and how they act and the new life in the Spirit. What it's saying here in verse 4 is this law that is fulfilled in us speaks of the Spirit's work in the believer in their walk of sanctification. It speaks of our pursuit to practically be like Jesus while we're still in this flesh, in the power of the Spirit that is now at work in us. The work of Christ has freed us from the penalty of the law, and now the Holy Spirit frees us to obey it. Because of Christ's cross work, I can now obey God's moral laws. It's stunning. The the law that once condemned me, I can now obey. Before Before I was justified, I could not satisfy or obey God. I was condemned by the law. But now I can be transformed more and more and more in the image of Christ. And this is the law being fulfilled in us. We progressively become righteous and holy a reflection of God and his holy laws. It's the purpose of our redemption. Now, if you go back to verse 8 in Romans 13, we see there, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So as we love one another with a biblical love, we fulfill the law. We fulfill God's purposes for us, the summation of the law, the law of love. And this is the work of the Spirit of God. It's the fruit of the Spirit to love others. This brings great encouragement, doesn't it? We're not on our own in paying this debt of love. The Spirit of God resides in us and now gives us the power and the desire to love others as we should. We're so imperfect in this pursuit, aren't we? Practically, you know, positionally before God, we're perfect. He doesn't see a flaw. Practically speaking, we often fail. But what do we do? We continue to work it out, for it is God who is at work in you. Now, as we go to verse 9 there, we get some further explanation on fulfilling the law. And that's going to take us to point number three of our four lessons Paul teaches us about loving the law. And that is this, the measure of my love for others is the love I have for myself. There in verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here you see Paul listing four of the Ten Commandments. 
these commandments that were first given in Exodus 20, and all of these here that he lists are relational ones to other people. Recall in the Ten Commandments that you can segregate them into two parts or two tables, right? The first four commandments are commandments directly related to our responsibility to God, our vertical relationship. And the final six commandments are commandments that are directly related to our responsibility, responsibility to others, our horizontal relationships, our, our moral duties to fellow men and women and our neighbors and all people. So Paul here specifically lists four of the six relational commands, and he appears to be listing them as examples because he says later in the verse here, he includes all relational commands when he says in, in verse 9, and any other commandment. So think of all the moral commands God gives to us in the Old or New Testament there, and you see forgiving one another and being kind to one another and carrying one another's sin burdens. So in verse 9, uh, you see here Paul quoting Leviticus 19.18, right? It emphasizes all the relational requirements of the law, that they're fulfilled when... Leviticus 19.18, you love your neighbor as yourself. Our God-given responsibilities to one another are summarized by loving your neighbor as yourself. And this love is to be extended to our neighbors. You go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan, and a neighbor is anyone we encounter in our life that has a need or of help or has a particular need. So in this command to love others as we love ourselves, we have a very practical way of understanding how to conduct ourselves in our, in our dealings with others in various human relationships. Now, I want to be mindful here. This is not a command of self-love. That's something that would make Mark Hager's blood curdle, right? Uh, it's not what it's advocating, a selfish, self-centered, me-oriented kind of love. As one writer, I think, rightly put it, there are only two great commandments, not three. John Calvin uh, said something here that I thought was really helpful. Indeed, to express how profoundly we must be inclined to love our neighbors, the Lord measured it by the love of ourselves because he had at hand no more violent, a stronger emotion than this. We all appropriately and naturally care for our own personal needs, don't we? This is not a repudiation of that. It's, a, it's basically a, a verification of that. This is, this, this is life. Minute by minute, we care for ourselves. So my love for others is to be as real and authentic as the care and attention that I give to myself. What God is calling us here to do is reorient our lives to be completely a God-focused, other-focused kind of direction. It's the golden rule to treat others as you want to be treated, to seek the good of others with the same fervency and motivation as you seek your own welfare. Let's think about some implications with this, of this principle. Uh, how you can take the love and care that you naturally extend to yourself and use them as a springboard to then love others in meaningful ways. Here's just some ways to think about how to love others as we love ourselves. And I, I got thinking about this. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about myself. You know, a lot of things we do are conscious or unconscious. If I, if I take one step before the other, I am thinking for myself. It may be unconscious, but I'm taking those steps. But as we do various things and we're thinking about ourselves, how can we extend that energy towards others, to love others in the way we're attention, uh, giving attention to ourselves? One thing I thought about is when I pray for my needs and my, for my, for my, needs and my decisions, I... I can practice taking time to pray for the urgent needs of others. 
as I was preparing for this message, I was naturally praying for myself. Lord, help me to know the word. Help me to speak it clearly. Lord, 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 help me. And as I was thinking about this verse, it's like, you know, there are other people teaching in this church today. And I took some time and I prayed for those teaching in our Sunday schools and Pastor Farrell and others. Why? Because the, the prayer needs I have for myself reminds me that other people have needs and I can bring them before the throne of grace. As we think about this loving others as we love ourselves, as I care for my own health needs, I can think of others who have significant health needs. Even if I'm giving thanks to God for a lack of health needs, I can look to them and we're always giving a list of things. We have shut-ins and we have, we have needs and widows and widowers and a, a text or a call or a visit is something we can be prompted to do as we care for our own health. As I fix a broken item in my home, I can remember a, a shut-in who's not able physically or financially to fix something in her, their home. So as I'm fixing this leaking faucet that I need to fix, and it needs to be done, oh, let that remind you, other people need things done as well, and I can extend my love. I can love them like I love myself. As I work to keep up with my bills, I can consider the financial needs of others and sacrificially, sacrificially give. As I long for a closeness to God and a thriving relationship with him, I can help seek the spiritual growth in others. That might be taking a, a younger person and going out to coffee, maybe discipling them, maybe taking a, a young man to Grace and Granite, or maybe taking a, lung, a young lady to women's Bible studies when they kick back in, or, or the women's conference. What are we doing? As we tend to our own spiritual needs, we're reminded, oh, let me love others like I'm loving myself. Let me extend myself to them and love them in the same. And so my, the measure of my love for others is the love I have for myself. May the Lord help us to love and care for others with the same care and devotion that we have to ourselves. Now if I get to our last point, uh, four lessons Paul teaches us about love and the law. And that's number four here. The malpractice of my love for others occurs when I disobey God's commands. Look there at verse 10 of Romans 13. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Let's state this uh, same truth a little bit differently. A lack of biblical love on my part will wrong or harm others. What is Paul doing here? He's referencing back to the relational commands of verse 9. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet in any other commandment. What is he saying here? When we violate these commands, it will harm others. It wrongs them. And that, of course, is an unloving thing. Let me get something clear here. The notion that my sin is just between me and the Lord is completely repudiated here. It's not just a personal thing, whether it's in just my thoughts or in my actions. Sin is destructive to your soul. But it's also a fact here, as stated, that your sin invariably hurts and wrongs and harms others. Think of it this way. Every time you, we choose to sin, that sin reveals a failure to love God and love others. Let me say that again. Every time we choose to sin, that sin reveals a failure to love God and love others. What do I mean by that? Look at this. If you go back to verse 9, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Just four of the commands. We could go to any of the commands, the moral law of God, but 
you shall not commit adultery. If I, if I love the guy next door, I will not take his wife because it would hurt him and hurt me and hurt the children. So many are, are affected by the sin. Instead, love protects the integrity of your marriage. If I love my brother and sister in Christ and I'm wronged by them, I won't seek revenge. Obviously, I shouldn't murder or hold resentment or anger because love protects. It does not destroy. If I love my neighbor, I won't covet or desire or try to take what is rightfully theirs. I wouldn't want them to take mine. Covetousness is destructive. When I covet what another man has, that sinful desire destroys my ability to rejoice with them. It affects relationships. The smile on our face as we're coveting another man's home or, 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 their, or their wife or, 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 or just lusting and coveting after something they have, it makes our relationship very duplicitous, doesn't it? We can smile and we're brothers and all this stuff, and boy, but I really want what you have. <laughs> and, 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 and the purposes and motives for why we treat others a certain way becomes very polluted, doesn't it? It's not genuine anymore. Love affects those relationships. You know, probably if there's a sin we address primarily and boundless, boy, it's certainly one of the big ones, and that's the sin of pornography. So it's not the sin of pornography, it's the sin of lusting, sexual immorality is what it is. And that vehicle of pornography is oftentimes just um, taken over uh, a young man's life and sometimes a young lady's life as well. And that's, again, that might be something a, a young man just looks at and says, well, that's just between me and the Lord. It doesn't affect others. I can kind of do this on the side and, and still come here and worship the Lord and it doesn't affect anything. And, and yet, oh, friend, the sin of sexual immorality like that, just, we, we, it's, it's such a sin of self-gratification. It's such a selfish sin. We start looking at other women lustfully and as objects, and not people created in the image of God. We use people for our own gain, and it just sullies and, 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 and pollutes the, the, the clear and, and wonderful fellowship we're to have together when those things are saturated in our minds. It wrongs other people when we choose to disobey with personal sins like that, it wrongs others, it harms others. And so the malpractice of my love toward others occurs when I disobey God's commands. It hurts us. Now let's think here. It's, all of us have sins we struggle with. We do battle with sin. It's, it's the ongoing pursuit of holiness, and we do that as a church family. And we're striving to become more like Christ together as we hear the word and allow the spirit of God to work in our lives and we, we're doing one another service towards each other to, to help us in this battle. But think through this. You are loving your fellow brothers and sisters as you wage war against the flesh. It's not just a personal battle. You're helping the integrity of our fellowship. When you confess your sins and repent of your sins, you demonstrate not only your, your love for God, but your love for the the body. So continue the fight, the good fight, for the glory of God and the good of others. Be quick to confess your sins and turn from them with a biblical repentance like we, we learned this morning. So as we close this evening, let's remind ourselves of a passage of scripture that we reviewed earlier. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice 
to God. Imitating God means being a loving person. Our supreme love for God and this absolute necessity that we commit ourselves to loving others. What a beautiful thing to think back on the gospel, that Christ alone has secured our salvation and our right standing before God where there's therefore now no condemnation. The law has been fulfilled for us. And now we have the gracious privilege where his commands are not a burden. And in this overflow of love, this love that can be extended to others, we can fulfill the law of God in us as we strive to be more like Christ, as we strive to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ until he comes back for you and me. May that be our holy, gracious, wonderful endeavor in this wonderful place we call Timberlake. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, it's been a blessing to open your word as it always is. We are reminded tonight of the great debt of love that we owe to others, and we know that's all predicated on what you first did for us, Lord. What a gracious, wonderful, amazing truth to know what you did for us while we were yet sinners. And the, the very law that condemned us, you perfectly kept. And you allowed yourself to be condemned in our place, and now today we can start fulfilling that law. Lord, you've put the Spirit in us. You, you've set us free. And now we can love others where once we could not. Now we can obey you where once we had no hope. And so, Father, help us to take these truths to heart. Help me as I strive to be a more loving person, as an overflow of the great love you have lavished on me. Help us in our fellowship to continue to be a loving fellowship that's committed sacrificially to the needs and burdens of one another. For it's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen.